Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. My dear cardio nerds, this is Amit Goyal. Join us on a new adventure as we journey through the maze of clinical practice guidelines. In this series, Decipher the Guidelines, we will take a deep dive into the 2021 ESC Cardiovascular Prevention Guidelines, focusing on similarities and differences from the American guidelines. This is a multidisciplinary collaboration between the Cardiators, the ACC Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease Section, the National Lipid Association, and the Preventive Cardiovascular Nurse Association, developed with a mentorship from Dr. Eugene Yang. And remember, CardioNerds is a fellow-founded, independent educational platform. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Do be a nerd and spread the word on social media and help others find us by rating and reviewing the show on your favorite podcast platform. And with that, it's time to get nerdy. The following question refers to Section 3.4 of the 2021 ESC Cardiovascular Prevention Guidelines. The question is asked by student Adriana Mares. Answered first by early career preventative cardiologist, Dr. Deepika Gopal, and then by expert faculty, Dr. Michael Wesley Milks. Dr. Milks is a staff cardiologist and assistant professor of clinical medicine at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, where he serves as the director of cardiac rehabilitation and an associate program director of the Cardiovascular Fellowship. He specializes in preventative cardiology and is a member of the American College of Cardiology's Cardiovascular Disease Prevention Leadership Council. Dr. Milks, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's really my pleasure to be here, especially as a cardio nerds listener myself. Once again, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Milks, so we can benefit from your expertise and wisdom. Our question is as follows. Mr. Daniel Collins is a 58-year-old white man with hypertension, chronic kidney disease, CKD, and obesity who presents to your clinic for a routine physical examination. Vitals are as follows. Blood pressure of 143 over 79 millimeters of mercury, heart rate of 89 beats per minute, oxygen saturation of 99% on room air, weight of 106 kilograms, EMI of 34.5 kilograms per meter squared. His recent laboratory testing revealed creatinine of 1.24 milligrams per deciliter, total cholesterol of 230 milligrams per deciliter. HDL of 39 milligrams per deciliter, LDL of 112 milligrams per deciliter, and triglycerides of 262 milligrams per deciliter. His current medications include lisinopril and rosuvastatin. You recommend increasing the dose of lisinopril to treat uncontrolled hypertension. What additional steps are indicated at this visit? The answer choices are A. Order urine albumin to creatinine ratio. B. Ask the patient how often they have been bothered by trouble falling or staying asleep or sleeping too much. C. Perform depression screening. Or D. All of the above. Dr. Gopal, what would be your next step in treating Mr. Collins? Thank you, Adriana, for this question. I think it's a really great question and it touches on a lot of important topics. The correct answer, I think, here is D. All of the above. So let's go through them step by step. The ESC guidelines give a class one level of evidence C indication that all chronic kidney disease patients with or without diabetes should undergo appropriate screening for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or ASCVD. 
and kidney disease progression. So this includes monitoring for changes in albuminuria, which estimates kidney disease progression. Cardiovascular disease is a leading cause of morbidity and mortality among patients with CKD. And even after adjusting for risk factors like diabetes and hypertension, there is actually a linear increase in cardiovascular mortality with a decreasing GFR below 60 to 75. And specific CKD-related risk factors include uremia-mediated inflammation, oxidative stress, and vascular calcification in several different vascular beds in the body. And in patients with atherosclerotic disease, obesity, and hypertension, the European guidelines give a class one indication to regularly screen for non-restorative sleep by asking the question, how often have you been bothered by trouble falling or staying asleep or sleeping too much? And if there are significant sleep problems that you've identified and tried to treat with appropriate sleep hygiene interventions and have not responded within four weeks of that, referral to a sleep specialist is recommended in that case. However, in the case of sleep apnea, despite the strong association between obstructive sleep apnea with cardiovascular disease, which includes the hypertension, stroke, heart failure, coronary artery disease, and atrial fibrillation, the treatment of sleep apnea with the CPAP has really failed to improve hard cardiovascular disease outcomes in patients with established disease. And it's shown that interventions that focus on risk factor modification, like reduction of obesity, reducing alcohol intake, stress reduction techniques, and improvement in sleep hygiene are actually probably more important. Moving on to the next category, mental health disorders, the European Society guidelines give a class one indication as well for this. Um, and that's to screen for mental health disorders when there's either significant functional impairment or a decrease in use of healthcare systems. And these are thought to influence total cardiovascular disease risk. All mental disorders are associated with the development of cardiovascular disease and reduced life expectancy. So these are really important to consider. Additionally, the onset of cardiovascular disease is associated with approximately two to three times increased risk of mental health disorders from happening. So the correlation goes both ways. And as such, screening for mental health disorders, it's recommended to be performed at every consultation, uh, which can be up to two to four times per year that you see a person. So the main takeaway to this question is that in addition to the traditional atherosclerotic disease risk factors we think about, other clinical conditions like sleep apnea uh, or decreased sleep hygiene, chronic kidney disease, and any men mental health condition is important to screen for and, if present, uh, to treat it. Dr. Milk, I was wondering what your opinion is on the best approach for screening for sleep apnea. There are several cr uh, criteria and cutoffs that we have, including BMI, circumference, there's questionnaires out there. How do you suggest going about this in like a regular clinical visit? Well, Dr. Gopal, thank you for that question. And first of all, thank you for leading us through that discussion. I think you really comprehensively covered how important those other clinical conditions are when it comes to uh, cardiovascular disease risk. So like you mentioned, admittedly, I'm probably more aggressive about OSA screening in patients who may be at risk for or have already developed clinical heart failure or atrial fibrillation, but we really should uh, step back and think about sleep disorders as a risk factor worthy of modification even before any disease manifests. So considering OSA and other causes of short sleep duration or other forms of poor sleep quality in primary prevention is something we should probably do more of, and the ESC guidelines 
uh, make this topic, again, very explicit. And so you point out that the guideline would suggest that we ask that question about uh, being bothered by trouble falling asleep or staying asleep or hypersomnia. If certain problems are elicited, like if there's a positive response to that question, then you point out that the sleep hygiene counseling uh, really is the first step. So that might include things like suggestion to go to sleep uh, and wake up at the same time each day to avoid uh, afternoon or evening caffeinated beverages. Some of us who are, you know, take call or workaholics might might be guilty of too much uh, afternoon or evening caffeine, but also uh, minimizing alcohol intake can be important for sleep quality as well. So you mentioned the certain screening questionnaires for OSA. Uh, the one I'm probably most familiar with is that stop bang questionnaire, which assesses for presence of loud snoring, uh, for daytime fatigue, or observed apneas. And then, as you mentioned before, some of those other concomitant risk factors such as male sex, hypertension, obesity, here actually with a BMI cutoff of 35, uh, age greater than 50, or as you pointed out, elevated neck circumference, which would be greater than 40 centimeters. And then a stop bang score of three or greater would indicate high risk of OSA. Thank you. That was really helpful to go over the specific criteria of the stop bang questionnaire. I think also what I found really interesting about the sleep portion of this was that they also don't only talk about sleep apnea, but sleep hygiene, which I think all of us in the medical professional are guilty of having bad sleep hygiene because of the hours that we work, et cetera, like you pointed out. I think it's interesting to highlight that for patients. Sometimes that can be changed, sometimes not, but at least having an awareness of it is important. Absolutely. I totally agree. Really important topic for discussion. 